Last week, I spoke to Adrian Scarborough about the Burko Speakeasy, an evening of storytelling that went online on Wednesday and is available to watch until January 16th, 2021. I was privileged enough to participate, and it was 50 minutes of wonderful storytelling, charmingly hosted by Aid, and you can still watch it by going to burkospeakeasy.co.uk or possibly searching for it on YouTube. So this week, something a little different, because the Burko Speakeasy got me into a holiday storytelling mood. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 732, Holiday Ghost Story. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is perhaps the most famous holiday ghost story, but this Christmas week I'm going to read for you a story by the Canadian novelist Robertson Davies, who for 18 years from 1963 to 1981 was a university professor and the first Master of Massey College at the University of Toronto. Every year, Mr. Davies would write and read a ghost story at the college's annual Christmas party, and he later collected these 18 short stories in a small volume called High Spirits, A Collection of Ghost Stories. I'll read one of these stories for you now. Enjoy. A Holiday Ghost Story by Robertson Davies Those of you who have attended several of these Christmas parties are aware how extensively, indeed extravagantly, this college is haunted. Every year a ghost, sometimes more than one. I cannot explain how a new building in a new country, or a country that pretends it is new, although in reality it is very old, comes to be so afflicted with what our university sociologists call spectral density. I suspect it has something to do with the concentration of our college community, senior and junior on intellectual things. There is in nature a need for balance, a compensating principle which demands, in our case, that where there is too much rationality, there should be occasional outbreaks of irrationality. I offer my explanation tentatively because I am no philosopher and certainly no scientist, and detractors have said that rationality is a quality by which I am seldom overwhelmed. Over the years, our ghosts have tended to be from the upper ranks of the spirit world. Now and then we have bagged a spectral crowned head, but as a general thing, our ghosts are drawn from the intelligentsia. I confess with shame that this has betrayed me into a measure of vanity. I catch myself wondering early in January, who will it be this year? And then I consult a list of anniversaries falling in the year to come. Ghosts, you know, are not always tied to the places where their earthly life was passed. Now and then they are granted a freedom of movement, which is called a witch's sabbatical. Last January, I looked eagerly to see who would be on tour, so to speak, and my eye fell upon the name of Henrik Ibsen. It was the 150th anniversary of his birth, and all over the world, a good deal of fuss was going to be made. Ibsen! my mouth watered. To be visited by that mighty dramatist, considered by so many people to be the greatest of his kind since Shakespeare? What a cultural coup that would be! 
but why would he visit us? Canada reflects the social world of Ibsen as much as any country in the world today. Surely he would come to Canada, if only to sneer. And, as you know, we contain within our walls the university's Center for the Study of Drama, and I knew that Ibsen would be in their minds and on their tongues. Surely the great man would favor us with a few morose words. But then I reproached myself. It is stupid to count your ghosts before they are manifested. Down, vanity, down, worldly aspiration, I cried. And they downed, but not totally. From time to time I surprised at the back of my mind an unworthy hankering. When December arrived, I was nervously aware that time was getting on. Henrik Ibsen was late. It was not like him. All through his life, he was known for his punctiliousness about appointments. If he said he would do a thing, he would do it, especially if it were something disagreeable. But then I came to my senses. Ibsen had promised nothing. This whole business of his visit was a foolish whim-wham of my own. The resolution of the affair came, as it so often does, on the night of our college dance. It has long been my custom, after the supper, which is a feature of our dance, to go out into the quad and take a few turns up and down. It is then that I often see ghosts. Nothing to do with the supper, I assure you, because I never take anything but a cup of coffee. Perhaps it is something to do with the excitement of seeing this quiet place turned for one evening into a palace of delights. So, as I paced the familiar flagstones in the chill air, I was not surprised to see a stranger standing, lurking, to be more precise, in a dark corner. My heart leapt within me. Was it he? The figure was slight for Henry Gibson, who, as you know from his photographs, was built rather like a barrel encased in a frock coat. And the hat. Where was the resplendent silk hat which was the great man's invariable outdoor wear? As I drew nearer, it was plain that the figure was wrapped in a cloak, which even in darkness looked shabby, and the hat was quite wrong. It was a three-cornered hat. Unless Ibsen had chosen for some inexplicable reason to get himself up as a figure from the early 18th century, this was the wrong ghost. I was disappointed and annoyed, and perhaps I spoke abruptly. What I said was, well, with that upward intonation that makes it clear that it is not at all well. "'If you please,' said the ghost, "'I am looking for a modest, dry lodging in quiet surroundings.' "'This is an odd time to be looking for a room,' said I. "'You should come back in daylight and speak to the bursar, "'if you are able to appear in daylight,' I added nastily. "'Please don't be severe with me,' said the ghost in such a pitiful tone "'that I felt ashamed of myself. "'My need is very great, and I must find a place tonight, "'or terrible things will happen to me.' "'He was almost weeping.' "'I have no wish to be severe,' said I, "'but you must understand that this college has a purpose to fulfill in the university, "'and that purpose makes no provision for for people in my situation,' said the ghost. "'But you are famous for your hospitality toward ghosts.' "'Ah, but I see,' he continued, "'you are only interested in famous ghosts, and I am a sadly obscure person.' That has been the pathos of my life. If I were not such a failure, I would use a stronger word than pathos. I would say tragedy. Poor fellow. I felt thoroughly ashamed of myself. Here I was, hankering after the ghost of a world-famous dramatist and behaving with abominable callousness to a poor phantom whose life had been a tragedy perhaps deeper than any Ibsen had conceived. Tears filled my eyes. I should have known better. "'Ghosts are all rampaging egotists that refuse to accept death as a fact. "'The ghost before me was now fixing me with a baleful glare, "'and I felt its hand laid with icy firmness on my sleeve. 
List, list to me, said the ghost. I could unfold a tale whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood. All right, all right, I said impatiently. If you must, and believe me, I know how communicative you ghosts can be, let me have it as briefly as possible and without poetry. I'm very well up in Hamlet. Who are you? "'That is my trouble,' said the ghost. "'In life I was that particular type of gentle person called a poor relation.' "'Whose poor relation were you?' said I. "'A rich relation's, of course. "'He was a country squire in Gloucestershire, not an ill-natured fellow. "'He knew I had no prospects and no luck, "'and he let me live in his manor-house in a subordinate position, "'helping with the estate accounts, writing letters, "'teaching the children a little Latin, "'and sometimes drawing scale plans for his drainage projects, "'while he and the vicar were out shooting. "'You know the kind of things poor relations do.' I had been something of a scholar, you see, and I had hoped for a college fellowship, but I had no influential friends. I had hoped to enter the church, but the bishop had too many nephews, and altogether I was a failure and a dependent. I didn't complain, well, not very much, that is to say, but I was a cousin of the squire, and it irked me that the servants treated me so badly. This was the sorriest excuse for a ghost I had ever met. Failure in the spirit world is particularly chilling, and I was beginning to shiver. But I couldn't break away. It would have been unfeeling. "'But you have apparently achieved some success after death,' said I. "'You are a ghost, and you are far from home. "'How have you got leave to travel?' "'That is the saddest part of my story,' said he. "'But you must hear me out. Don't bustle me.' I groaned, but I had not the heart to leave him. "'It came to a head this very night, two hundred and fifty years ago,' said the ghost. "'It was on December the ninth in 1728. "'Our good King George the Second had just entered the eleventh year of his long reign. "'Yes, yes,' said I, "'I know a little history myself. Do make haste.' "'What a fidget you are,' said the ghost, rather sharply, I thought, for a poor relation. "'Then hear me. "'My cousin, the squire, and his lady had gone to Sudley Castle to a ball.' I was not invited. Of course not. I was a nobody, and I had no fine clothes. I was left at home without even a word of apology, nor had any dinner been ordered. My cousin's wife, who was inclined to be mean, said that doubtless I could get something in the kitchen with the servants. That would have not been so bad, because the servants saw to it that they ate very well, but it meant that I had to brave my greatest enemy, the butler. He took every chance to make me feel my position as a poor relation— "'and that night he was particularly tyrannous because he was drunk. "'We quarreled. He killed me. "'Stabbed you?' I asked. "'No. Shot you? "'The great kitchen blunderbuss kept above the chimney, "'loaded in case of burglars. "'In his drunken rage the butler tore it from its place "'and shot you while the women folk screamed. "'You have seen too much television,' said the ghost. "'The eighteenth century wasn't like that at all.' I continued to be hopeful and romantic. But the quarrel, I said, he insulted you, spoke slightingly of your birth, and your good blood was aroused. You lunged at him with your sword, but lost your footing, and he seized the sword and stabbed you to the heart. Please say it was like that. I never owned a sword in my life, said the ghost. Nasty, dangerous things. No, I'll tell you exactly how it was. I was rather drunk myself, you see, and we were having a dispute about how to make boot blacking. I had complained that the blacking he used had too much brown sugar in it. You know, the secret of good boot blacking is the proportion of brown sugar to the amount of soot and vinegar. It's the butler's work to make it, and, and I said he put in too much brown sugar. I said my boots were always sticky. 
He said I lied. I said he forgot himself in the presence of his betters. He said what betters, and I was no more than a servant myself, and begged the squire's old wigs. Then I absent-mindedly picked up a table fork and stuck it into his right buttock. He must have had very soft flesh, because it went much farther in than I had expected, right up to the handle. Then he picked up a pewter tankard and hit me over the head, and to my surprise and indignation I fell to the floor, dead as a nit. This was the lowest ghost I had ever been pestered by. A wearer of second-hand wigs, brained in a kitchen brawl with a pewter pot, and he had the gall to haunt Massey College? Nevertheless, as a tale of low life, this had its interest. What happened then? I asked. That was the cream of the whole thing, said the ghost, as near to laughter as a ghost can get. You see, as soon as the butler hit me with that pot, I found myself about nine inches above the ground, watching everything, myself stretched out on the floor, the cook trying to staunch the blood from my head with a towel, all the maids in hysterics, the footman saying he knew it would come to this some day, and the butler, as white as a sheet, blubbering, Oh, sir, come back, I beg ye. I never went for to do it, sir. Come back, and I'll go light on the brown sugar as long as I live. Indeed, sir, I will. But it was hopeless. I was gone, so far as they were concerned. The butler ran off and became a highwayman, but he was too fat and stupid for the work, and he was caught and hanged within a year. But there was one thing about the affair that was truly impressive. The cook was a wise woman, and before the butler ran off, she begged him to taste my blood, just a little, just to dip his finger in the blood and lick it. He refused. She took a few licks herself to show him that there was nothing really unpleasant about it, but, of course, she was professionally accustomed to tasting uncooked substances. Why? Because, you see, she knew that if she did that, my ghost would never be able to appear. Now, you remember that. If ever you kill anybody, swallow some of his blood, or you'll be sorry. But, of course, in these days, so many murderers are careless and ignorant that what I'm telling you has almost been forgotten. I've always been glad that butler was thoroughly stupid. Otherwise, my fine career, my real achievement, would have been impossible. The ghost was markedly more cheerful now. Do you know, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. From being a poor relation, I was suddenly promoted to family ghost. My cousin and his wife were proud of me, and as succeeding generations appeared in the manor, I became quite a celebrity. I was once investigated by the Society for Psychical Research, and Harry Price himself gave me the coveted three-star rating, accredited Spectre First Class. I continued to be patient under difficulties. But what brings you here, I asked. He groaned. All ghosts groan, and it is a very disquieting sound. This ghost was a first-rate groaner. "'You read the newspapers, I suppose,' he said. "'Unfailingly,' I replied. "'Then surely you remember the account of the old English manor house "'that had been bought by a Toronto entrepreneur "'and rebuilt stone by stone quite nearby?' "'I did remember it. "'It was literally an uprooting,' said the ghost. "'But I took it philosophically. "'After 250 years, I was beginning to feel housebound, "'and I thought a new country, new people to frighten, "'new people to boast about me would be an adventure.' So I didn't mind the move to Toronto. The journey by airline freight wasn't bad, and but when I arrived at last, all sorts of terrible things began to happen. Climate unfavorable, I suppose, said I sympathetically. 
Not that so much as the structural changes, said the ghost. Our splendid old manor house kitchen was thought too big for a Canadian dwelling. To begin, it was a good hundred and forty feet from the dining room, and there was a flight of stone stairs on the way. You should have heard what the real estate people had to say about that. And it had a flagstone floor, which was hard and cold to Canadian feet. Further, our house was a proper gentleman's residence, and without a butler and a footman and six maids and a cook and a scullion, nothing more ambitious than sandwiches could be managed. So the real estate people decided that an entirely new kitchen should be built, and the old kitchen should become something called a rumpus room, where the children of the family could be at a suitable distance from their elders. I gather that rumpus is the modern word for what in my day was called a hullabaloo. A modern kitchen is no place for a ghost. Crackling with electric current, cold things, hot things, and cramped so that one miserable servant can do the work of five? Where is the ingle nook, where visiting grooms and coachmen can dry themselves in bad weather? Where is the cheerful fire and the spit, the dogs, the cat and her kittens, the hens running in and out, the ducks peeping in at the door, and in winter the shadowy corners for haunting? Nevertheless, I determined to make the best of it. All immigrants have a hard time in a new country for a few hundred years. I decided to divide my time between the new kitchen on the housekeeper's day off and the rumpus room when the children weren't doing whatever children do in a rumpus room, which is something I never found out. Because, you see, the house didn't sell. Even with all the tinkering and destruction and costly misery and modern convenience, it somehow failed to catch on. So the people who were trying to sell it hit on a great idea. They would let the public visit it. Well, that was the end for me. We phantoms have our feelings, and I never undertook to haunt wholesale, so to speak. Servants I will frighten, yes, gladly. Gentlefolk of my own kindred I will provide with the thrill of a true family phantom, though I have always drawn the line at manifesting myself to more than two at a time. Usually a man and his wife, or better still, somebody who ought to be his wife. But haunt I must. It is part of my condition of existence, you see. Unless I make an appearance at least once a year, I am in serious trouble with, well, never you mind who. I suppose a great many people visited the house, said I. They came by scores and hundreds, said he. And what they did to our family manor beggars description, as old Shakespeare says. They invited Toronto decorators to refurbish it, a room to each decorator. They filled our comfortable old manor with spindly walnut and mahogany that might have done well enough in a fashionable bawdy house in London, but was not to be compared with our comfortable old oaken chairs stuffed with the wool of our own sheep. They brought in pictures of people nobody had ever heard of and set out furniture in which even I, as a weightless specter, could not have sat with any comfort. And you couldn't bear it, said I sympathetically. I could bear everything, said he, and I swear that if ever a ghost had tears in his eyes, it was at this moment. Everything, that is, except the air conditioning. Would you believe that they filled the fine old walls with metal guts that conveyed jets of air that stank of mice to every part of that dear old place? Jets that squirted out where one least expected, blowing me about like a leaf in a storm and playing merry hell with my ectoplasm until I developed the worst case of phantom arthritis that has ever been seen at any of our Halloween meetings? That was the finish. That settled the matter forever. I had to leave or I should have become a mere knotted bundle of malice and would probably have dwindled into a poltergeist of the lowest class. So will you take me in? You are a modern foundation, I know, but your college has some of what I regard as the comforts of home. Drafts, mostly. 
I miss normal, healthy drafts more than you can imagine. I pondered, and that is always fatal. For when I ponder, my resolution leaks away. He was a humble creature, as ghosts go, but his story had gone to my heart. Still, where on earth was I to put him? I could make myself useful, he said wistfully. I have heard that a trade flourishes on this continent, that of a ghost writer, and I know a lot of writing is done here. Yourself, for instance, I know you write romances, and though I despise romances, perhaps in time I could grind out a three-volume novel about an unfortunate young man who wanted to be a college fellow and, and then wanted to take holy orders, but who was slain untimely in an affair of honor with an aristocratic adversary. I promised to put in lots of theology. You could sign it, of course. No, I said firmly, that wouldn't do at all. He looked very forlorn, and he seemed to grow more transparent as grief overcame him. Could I copy manuscripts, he pleaded? I had a flash of illumination. Our Xerox machine in the college is terribly inadequate, and a copyist would be a great benefit to us, especially a copyist who was cheap. But where was I to put him? I cudgeled my brains, and then, another flash, I had the answer. Years ago, when this college building was completed, the architect, Mr. Tom, presented me with a set of plans. I counted the rooms for occupation by junior fellows, and I paused. Then I went through the college with the bursar, and we counted and counted again, and however carefully we counted, there were three rooms in the plan which could not be found in the building. I made inquiry of Mr. Tom. Yes, he said, in the abstracted manner which is characteristic of architects, when I had made all the alterations the founders called for, three rooms somehow got mislaid. Walls were moved, and jogs and corners were eliminated, and somehow or other three rooms disappeared. They are here, in a way, and yet, in another way, they aren't here. Without a word, I led the ghost up to the top of staircase number three, until we confronted a blank wall. "'Here is your room,' said I. "'I don't pretend that I can see it myself, but perhaps you can.' "'It was a risk on my part, and it worked. "'The ghost vanished through the wall, but I could hear his voice, "'and for the first time since we met, its tone was cheerful. "'Of course!' he cried. "'The very thing I've always wanted. "'Commodious, a charming view of the quad, "'several strong drafts, and no modern conveniences whatever. "'Bless you, sir, bless you!' I was rid of him for the moment. I made a chalk mark on the wall where his door seemed to be. In a day or two, I would hunt him up and instruct him in his new duties as an unseen and unrequited Xerox. As I walked back through the quad with a light heart, I suddenly saw... My heart leapt into my mouth. I suddenly saw a figure, familiar to me from a score of 19th-century photographs, standing near the gate, looking about him with an air of deep disapproval. That barrel-shaped body in the impeccable frock coat, that tall silk hat of surpassing splendor. It must be he. I was to be rewarded for my good deed. I rushed forward, my hand outstretched. Dr. Ibsen, I cried, you have come at last. Do stay a while. Do come inside. Have a glass of aquavit. Let us have a really splendid talk about your work. And will you honor me by inscribing my copy of your great drama, Ghosts? Ibsen, for indeed it was he, bent upon me a gaze that was like being transfixed by two little knives. His thin lips parted and a single word escaped the prison house of his formidable countenance. Divertimont, said he, and without another word, 
he banished through the bars of our gate. To Vertimont, to Vertimont, that supremely characteristic utterance had been the last word he spoke on his deathbed. I rushed into my study, dragged down my great dictionary of the Norwegian tongue, and looked it up with trembling hands. To Vertimont, said the entry, quite the contrary, or colloquially, not on your Nelly. Well, I reflected, not a bad Christmas for ghosts after all. We had acquired an additional Xerox, and Henrik Ibsen had dropped in for a sneer. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.